him. Well, studies have shown that happiness will increase if you are looking forward to something. If you have a trip that is planned, if you have a week that is happening, oh, I don't know, pulling something out of the thin air, if you are engaged to be married, you know, something like that, you have something to look forward to, your mood is naturally going to become more joyful. Of course, the opposite is true, right? When you have something coming up that you don't want to do, that impacts your mood as well. That stressful situation with a coworker or a client, another day with the kids at home for summer vacation, the medical procedure that's coming up that you are not looking forward to. Turns out what we focus on, but to use a biblical word here, what we meditate on has a lot to do with our level of joy and our level of happiness. So what are we focusing on? What are we meditating on? Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody should grab their phones right now and go to Expedia.com and book a trip to, you know, some exotic location. But I am saying as Christians, we have a biblical way to ground ourselves in joy and happiness. Specifically, as we just sung about, the goodness of Jesus, the blessings of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us is how we ground ourselves biblically in joy. And Paul is going to tell us all about that today. So if you're not in Romans chapter 5, head on over there. We are making our way through the book of Romans. Last week, we turned a major theological corner and looked at the first few verses of chapter 5 and hopefully learned some, some of the glorious benefits of justification by faith. Justification by faith, of course, means being declared innocent of your sin by God himself. And so because we've been justified by faith, we can experience peace with God and then peace in all areas of our life that flows from that. Because we've been justified by faith, we can also know true grace. We stand before God in Christ as I was was thinking about that song that we just sung, right? When we are standing before God, we're standing before the throne of God and we're standing before his throne in grace. And because we've been justified by faith, we can also see God's design in suffering. And suffering for Christians, as we said, has a design. Suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character produces hope, and hope cannot disappoint us. Only Christians can rejoice in hope. And if you remember, we said that a hopeless Christian is an oxymoron and a terrible witness for the truth of our faith. So is a joyless Christian. A joyless Christian is indeed another oxymoron. But where is our joy based? That's what Paul is going to teach us all about today. So look again at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For, so because, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 6 again starts with another major Pauline characteristic, the for, the because. He continues to outline his argument here going deeper and deeper. He says because he's proving this point, that he's carrying on this point from last week, right? Because while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Let's unpack this verse a little bit. What does he mean by while we were still weak? Weak means, in this case, to be helpless, having an incapacity or an inability to be strong. There's no way to help yourself. Help yourself do what? Well, in this case, and as we've said many times before already in our study of Romans, help yourself as far as sin. We can't justify ourselves. There's no way that we can get ourselves out of our sin predicament. So as far as sin, we are helpless. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people cannot help themselves. Therefore, we're in need of a rescuer or a redeemer from outside of ourselves. Enter Jesus Christ, who out of his own free will and obedience to the Father, of course, died on the cross, sacrificing himself for our sins at just the right time, Paul says. It reminds me of what he also wrote in the book of Galatians in chapter 4, starting in verse 4. He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you see that? When the fullness of time had come, Paul says the same thing here in Romans, at just the right time, at the time that God ordained it to happen, That's when Jesus came. That's when Jesus took on human flesh and went to the cross for our sins. He also says that he did this for the ungodly. And we are actually the ungodly. This is not a certain subsection of really bad, terrible people. This is all of us at one time were ungodly. We were against God. Again, the spiritual state of all of us before Christ Paul's the only one to use this word in the New Testament. He uses it four times in Revelation. Two of them we've seen already in 1.18 and 4.5. And now he says it again. Paul states just how remarkable this sacrifice is. Look at, look at verses 7 and 8. He'll say that again. He brings it into focus. He explains this with a common example. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. Paul's explaining this using a common understanding from life. People don't generally die to save the lives of bad people, right? But every once in a while, you will see someone who will die, sacrifice themselves in order to save someone who is good. Does happen every once in a while still. Enter the love of God in Jesus Christ. He says, but God, one of the most those, those, when he uses the word but, right, the idea that this is a sudden change of what you see in the world, such a contrast. But God doesn't work like that. God shows how much he really loves us by dying for the ungodly, by dying for us, watch this, while we were still sinners. Paul is using a powerful example here. Someone might die to save the life of a good person. But no one would ever die to save the life of their enemy or a bad person. See how God doesn't love the way that the world loves? It's completely different. And so that's our first benefit, if you will. Jesus' sacrifice demonstrates the extraordinary love of God. Jesus' sacrifice demonstrates the extraordinary love of God. Douglas Moo wrote, God's love is far greater in its magnitude and dependability than even the greatest human love. 
God's love doesn't make sense. Who dies for someone who is against you? No one. You die for someone you love. I mean, parents, you can understand this. You would give your life for your children or your grandchildren in a heartbeat, right? What if there was a kid in the neighborhood who hated you and egged your house and beat up your kids? Would you be willing to just in a heartbeat die for them? Someone who is an enemy of you? Maybe another example, think of soldiers in the military or police officers or firemen, right? Would they die to save the life of one of their brothers in arms? You better believe it. In a second, they would do that. Would a cop jump in front of a bullet from someone else who's trying to kill them? Probably not. That's the example that Paul's painting here. The love of God in Jesus Christ is extraordinary. It doesn't work like human love. That's the love of God. The love of God that drove Jesus to the cross is all over the New Testament. Of course, you might be thinking of John 3, 16, and you'd be right. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2 tells us because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. 1 John, 1, or 1 John 4 rather says, in this the love of God was made manifest. In other, in other words, seen. This is how we see the love of God. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So Paul's making this connection as he has many times before, as Jesus himself did in John 3. How do we see the extraordinary love of God the most, the clearest in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Even, especially for his enemies, for those who were sinners. Church, We need to be reminded today of this simple truth. Sometimes we just got to put it on the bottom shelf, right? God loves you. And if you ever have any doubts about that, look at the cross. Before you even existed, before you ever could ever do anything that even remotely might attract him, which we can't, he died for you. He died while we were sinners, while we were rebels against him. He died for his enemies. He didn't die for you when you had it all together. He didn't die for you after you came to him. He didn't die for you when you were the cool kid. In fact, you weren't even alive when he died for you, but he died for you to be able to live. Church father John Chrysostom put it this way, there is no one who will save us except the one who loved us so much that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Paul continues to dive deep into the blessings of faith in Jesus Christ, the reality of what Christ actually accomplished for us at his greatest expense, his sacrifice on the cross. It's like Paul is explaining this, and it gets better and better. He gets increasingly more excited as he gets in this passage. He unpacks one blessing after another. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we see God's extraordinary love for us as children, but we also see what he has secured for us. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We've got a since here. We've got a therefore. To start us off, we've got all these transitional words, and we've got to back up and and, and realize Paul's moving on. He's going to another point here. Notice also the way Paul puts it. We have been justified. 
right? Tells us two things. Tells us past tense, that happened to us, right? Happened in the past. He's writing to Christians who have already been declared innocent of their sins by God through their faith in Jesus Christ. Justification, one-time act by God. You place your faith in Jesus Christ and you are justified. You are declared innocent. But the second thing is actually lurking in the Greek because it's a passive verb. So it's been done to us. We didn't do it. God did it for us. We have been justified by someone else. How did that happen? He answers that too. By his blood. Anytime you see by his blood, it's usually synonymous with the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. His blood shed on the cross. We know from what has been said so far, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that justification by faith is in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. He then uses another classic kind of Pauline apologetic technique. This is his how much more so argument that he loves to use. He uses it like four times in this one passage. It's like he's saying, well, we got this, but then we got this, and then we got this and this. It's even better. He keeps going and going. How much more? Verse 10, he puts the summary exclamation point on that thought and reiterates the sentiment from 6 to 8. He says, if while we were his enemies... We were reconciled to God by the sacrifice of Christ. Watch this. How much more, as we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Paul, using, again, his argument technique, is proving the irrevocability of our salvation, of our reconciliation. He's saying, guys, if God justified us, right? If he justified us by faith, don't you think that means he's going to save us from his wrath as well? If he died for us when, when we were his enemies, of course he will save us now that we are his children, he says. It's like taking your kids on vacation, right? We're, in, we're entering into vacation season, right? You plan this thing, you got everybody in the car, you're going on vacation, and you have a child, maybe an extraordinarily polite child, that says, is it okay if we have something to eat? something to eat. We're on vacation. You can have anything you want to eat, right? It's that idea of, yes, we've been given, and there's so many more blessings that are unpacking out of this thing, out of what he has done. We're not talking about vacation food time here. We're talking about our salvation. Paul says that because he secured our justification, how much more so will he then secure our salvation from his wrath? If you're new to the Bible, and you're new to Highlands, the good news of our salvation is only good if you know the bad news of what happens to us. The good news is only good if you understand what the true bad news is. And the true bad news is, stated many times by Paul, many times in the Bible elsewhere, that we are all actually born under the wrath of God. We are at all actually born his enemies with no hope. The bad news is that God has legit wrath for sin and it's directed upon each and every one of us, like Paul said earlier in 1 verse 18. The good news, though, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved from his wrath. As I was reading this, preparing this, maybe, maybe you too felt this. Maybe there's a little bit of tension here. Maybe there's a little bit of worry that the Roman church is saying, is this true? Is this really how it works? Like, we're just justified by faith, and that's it? Along with that, his wrath 
for sin is gone. And along with that, we're saved. We're going to be in heaven with him for eternity. Am I really innocent of my sin? Are, are God and I actually really reconciled here, Paul? Is that what, he's, is that, what that means? It's the whole point of that is what Paul's saying. Look, guys, what God has done for you in Christ, of course he will save you. If he's done all that, if he's given Christ on the cross, of course he will save you. So the second point I'll say like this, Jesus' sacrifice ensures our future salvation. And Jesus' sacrifice ensures our future salvation. You might be slightly confused by that word future. It's one of the many tensions of Scripture, right? It's that already, not yet. Because here we are, positionally, we are saved the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ, right? The moment that we realize that we are sinners, separated from God, under God's wrath, and that we understand that he provided Jesus for us, and that that wrath was, big word, propitiated, right? Satisfied on the cross. We place our faith in that. That moment, we are justified. We are saved, okay? Christian lingo, right? We are saved. That's our position before God. But our situation is that we're still here. Our situation is that we're still grinding it out in Sussex County doing our thing, right? Our situation is that, yeah, we're saved positionally, but we're not home yet. We've got to get there, right? We've got to, we've got to, so it's that tension of, yes, we're saved, but we're not saved yet. We're saved, but we're not home yet. However, watch this, Jesus' sacrifice ensures that on that day we will be saved. ESV dilutes this truth a little bit in their translation using the word shall. How much more shall we be saved by him? Or how much more shall we be saved by his life? Both of those verbs are actually in the future tense in the Greek. We don't say shall all that much. After work, I shall go to the gym. Like, we just don't really say that that much, right? CSB clears it up and says, how much more will I be saved? Right? This is happening in the future. How much more will I be saved by his life? If you pay close attention to how salvation is talked about in the New Testament, that's the way that it uses it most of the time. Acts 2.21, quoting the prophet Joel, says, Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, will be, future tense, saved. Positionally, again, we're justified by faith, but situationally, we're not saved yet. Jesus' sacrifice ensures our future salvation. We will make it home because of Christ's sacrifice has done the work for that, and he will cause us to persevere. Maybe it's best to look at salvation as a process that is secured by Jesus' sacrifice. I, I think that's backed up by a verse like 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, watch this, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you've been around the church for more than five minutes, you have the Christian lingo. I'm saved. Are you saved? I'm saved. Jesus saves. Right? Okay, yes, I agree. But we have to keep in mind that there is still a day when we will actually be saved. We will be, we will be removed from this earth. We will be removed from sin and sickness and death. Right? We will be, we will be spared the wrath of God. And it will be complete at that time. But right now, positionally, we are saved as well. 
And that begs the question, saved from what? Or maybe better, saved from who? We are saved from God himself, specifically from God's wrath. It has been said we are saved from God by God. A lot of times we think about that like, okay, what am I saved from? I'm I'm saved from hell. Yes, I'm saved from Satan, my enemy. Okay, yes, I'm saved from all that. But specifically, theologically, you're saved by God. You're saved from God himself because God's the one who would send you to hell for your sin. God's the one who has wrath because of your sin. And the crazy thing about this, the crazy thing about biblical Christianity is we're saved from God by God. He's the one who intervenes and saves us from his own wrath. R.C. put it this way, the glory of the gospel is this, the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. Remember the profound truth of Romans 3, 26 a couple weeks ago. Jesus, the Son of God, is both what? Just and the justifier. God has to treat sin the way it deserves to be treated. He has to punish sin. And that sin, church, will either be punished by you in hell for all of eternity, or it will be laid upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where we are. Perhaps the Roman church was concerned about the surety of their salvation. Paul comforts us and he comforts them. He says, look guys, if you've been justified by faith, how much more then will you be saved from his wrath? How much more will you be saved by his life? What guarantees it? The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what guarantees it. The work has been done. He's been victoriously resurrected from the dead. And if you ever doubt that your salvation is secure... You look to the cross of Jesus Christ. So that is the rock-solid nature of our future salvation, our position before God today. So how should that affect our lives in the world right here and now? And that's where Paul lands the plane. Look at our last verse. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul drops one more, more than that point, or how much more point. He's continuing to systematically prove the soundness of his argument by ratcheting up the blessing each time. It's more than that, or he says maybe it gets better than that. What could be better than knowing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ shows us the extraordinary love of God? What could be better than than seeing in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that our future salvation is secure? He says a simple answer, joy. He says we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul, once again, focuses on a major blessing of our justification, our reconciliation, and what that does for us in producing joy. He mentioned it in verse 10. He mentions it in verse 11, both times as our status. He says, we have received reconciliation. To be reconciled with someone means that you are no longer enemies with them, or there is no longer a conflict between you. Where there once was a conflict where you were unreconciled, right? You are now reconciled. You are now peaceful. Your relationship has been restored. Our biggest need, church, and we said it before, but I have to say it every week. Our biggest need is that every single one of us enters this world 
unreconciled with God. That's our biggest need. For everything else flows from that. Right? We talked about it last time in 5.1 when we're talking about peace, right? You're not going to have peace in any other aspect of your life until you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Same deal, reconciliation. Your, your, your relationship with your God, your creator, is broken. And until that relationship is reconciled, you will not have peace, joy, any other reconciliation, really, ultimately, in your heart until you are reconciled with the God who made you. Being reconciled is a status and again, we see this in our own relationships. We have certain people we know of, of course, no one in this room, right? Certain people that we know of that might be unreconciled with each other. I was speaking to someone as they were planning their wedding, like, okay, who are we going to put at what table? We remember that. Well, we can't have Aunt Barb next to Cousin Billy because that's not going to work. So we got to, let's put Cousin Billy next to the DJ and stick Aunt Barb, you know, somewhere. It happens, right? Families have that relationship. Holidays are always really good for that, right? Get everybody together. We realize who's still unreconciled. We see this. It's important to note, as Christians, we are called to be reconciled to each other, even unbelievers. We are called to, Paul says later on in Romans 12, when we get there in like three years, he says, as long as, long as it's up to you, right, live at peace with everyone. So because, again, we've been reconciled to God, we have to be reconciled with each other That's as much as you can, as long as it's up to you, right? We can't make people reconcile, but we have to be ready to be reconciled. The spiritual reality all around us is that we enter into this world in an unreconciled state with us and God. In other words, you and God are not okay, right? There's so many people that walk around thinking, I have this arrangement with God. No, you don't. You don't have an arrangement with God. Your arrangement with God is that you are his enemy because of sin. That's how it works. Unfortunately, I didn't make it up. I'm just a mailman. That's what the Bible says, right? And the way to be reconciled is through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, God provided the means to be reconciled. And third point, I'll say it this way. Jesus' sacrifice also makes reconciliation with God possible. It makes reconciliation with God possible. And notice I said possible. Again, we sometimes mistakenly think, I can't tell you how many spiritual conversations I've had with people that think they're okay with God. They're not okay with God until they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some people mistakenly either walk around thinking they have A, no need of reconciliation with God, or B, that they just have some special arrangement with God where they're okay. The Bible is very, very clear. There's only one way to be reconciled, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, repentance and faith, right? A turning from your sin and a turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ to be reconciled. Reconciliation is a key concept in the gospel. One famous teacher said, don't ever mention the gospel without mentioning what it means. It means reconciliation. It means we have been reconciled with our Creator, this is all over the scripture, of course, in many of Paul's writings. But there's maybe no better place to look at it than Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read a chunk starting in verse 19. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, he's talking about Jesus, 
and through him, watch this, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, that's what reconciliation means, making peace by the blood of his cross. He continues, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, watch this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I want to bring out a few things from this. First note, again, this is all dependent on Jesus Christ. This is all dependent on what Jesus did. By the way, mentions Jesus as God straight up in verse 19. Oh, the Bible never says Jesus is God. No, it actually does about a million times, okay? He says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So first of all, it's based on Jesus Christ, what he did, and his status as God in the flesh. Through Jesus, God the Son, we see reconciliation is possible but not just personal reconciliation. What does he say? He's reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or on, in heaven. If you've ever doubted that God is still on, Jesus, rather, God the Son, is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning all things, this is a great passage to go to to remind yourself of that truth. That included with that reconciliation, sometimes we in evangelical, squishy Christianity sometimes, right? We think it's all about us. God has reconciled me. God has forgiven me. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. But it's bigger than that. God has cosmically reconciled the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. It's bigger than us because Christianity is not actually about us. Right? It's about God's glory. And so when we think about that, we look at this verse and we see that not only has he recon- made reconciliation with us possible, but he's reconciled the world to him. There is no, that doesn't mean that everybody gets saved. I'm not preaching universalism here. That means there, there's no enemy of God that will prosper. That means, as we said last week, that God wins, that God cannot lose. He's already reconciled all things to himself. The death of Christ on the cross crushed evil in all its forms, and one day we will see the fruit of that. Look at what else he says. Our reconciliation is possible how? Through the cross, right? That's Jesus' part, but what is our part? Our part is faith, specifically verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. Reconciliation is possible, but again, our status, and now we have to continue in the faith. Right? Faith is something we believe in. We believe in Jesus once and we are reconciled, but faith continues. We persevere in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. That's the truth of salvation. Right? Okay, great. Stable steadfast, unshakable, cool. Got it, Pastor Mike. Thanks. Have you met my kids? Do you know my boss? Do you know what my life looks like right now? It is anything less than not stable. It is unstable. 
It is unsteadfast. There are days where, Pastor Mike, I feel like the world is caving in all around me and I feel the farthest thing from stable and steadfast and immovable. Does that mean I'm not saved? No. That does not mean you are not saved. That means you are a human being living on the planet Earth in the presence of sin. But how can we be stable, steadfast, and unshakable in hope when we have so many other things going on threatening all of those things? First, let's get something clear right up front. There is no one in this room, no matter how good of a Lord's Day you're having, there is no one in this room who is stable and steadfast and immovable 24-7-365. It just doesn't happen. Sometimes we come to church and we see everybody showered and looking nice and we're like, wow, I wish I had a life like that guy. Or I wish I had kids like them, right? No, that's a lie, right? We all have these days. That does not mean we're not saved. So we have to get that straight. But here's the question. What is your trajectory? Do you spend your life in that, 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 that unstable portion as opposed to the stable portion? Here's another diagnostic question. How easily rocked are you? When your world does look like unstable, right, and everything is moving, how easily rocked are you? What is your trajectory? It's not going to be, it's not perfection, right? We're looking for sanctification in direction here. For help understanding this, we need to go back to our main text again and look at verse 11, our last verse, and Paul will hopefully bring all the pieces together for us. Paul has his final more than that in the passage. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul says, in order, the best thing, more than that, he says, the best thing is joy. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Joy is then the empowerment that gets us through those times when we don't feel stable, when we don't feel steadfast, when we don't feel unmovable. Joy is the solid foundation of our lives as a Christian, says in Nehemiah, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we look at all that Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice, right, bring it back to that. We bring it back to what all Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice, church. That's where the joy has to come from. We look to Jesus. We look to what he's done. That's what Paul's encouraging the church at Rome. He says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Simple big idea for us today, but one that I hope you will think deeply about. Joy comes through Jesus. Joy comes through Jesus. Specifically, all of these things that Paul has just outlined that Jesus has done for us. Through Jesus' sacrifice, right, we see the extraordinary love of God. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we see our salvation is secure. We can have assurance of salvation no matter what we see going on in the world. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we can actually have reconciliation with God, which is our biggest need. And so how does that impact our Mondays? Church, start by rehearsing these points. Start by meditating on the truth of what Jesus has done for you through the cross. Many people mistakenly think that joy is just something they need to conjure up in themselves, right? 
There's a big difference, it's been said many times, between happiness and joy. Happiness is situational. Joy is not. Joy is something that is established in our hearts. Joy is something that grows really from our state with God through Jesus Christ. Joy is cultivated. We can have true joy in our hearts and not be very happy about some of the things that are going on. Right? I'm not saying we have to like, count it all joy and go full Ned Flanders and be like, everything's fine. Our life is burning down all around us, and this is great. Count it all joy. No, again, psychopaths do that. That's not what I'm talking about. Be real. We can be unhappy in the midst of our circumstances and yet still have a cultivated status and a heart full of joy. How? Because that joy is not dependent on your circumstance. That joy is dependent on what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. And Paul just gave us three big bombshells for us to look at when we're feeling joyless. We see the love of God and what he did for us on the cross when we were still his enemies. We were still sinners. We have the assurance of salvation. We can have reconciliation with God. Joy, after all, is a fruit of the Spirit. Meaning, the more we grow in maturity in Jesus Christ, the more joy we should have. The more immovable, stable, unshaken we should actually be. Why? Because it's not in us. It's in Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian and you don't have joy, it's one of the many ways that God is using to say, come over here. I'm pursuing you. You can have true joy in the midst of circumstances and start by seeing that joy comes through Jesus. All of these blessings that Paul laid out are for Christians, and they can be yours if you come to Christ. But Christians, what can we do to increase our joy? You're doing one of them right now. Good job. Gold star. You are hearing God's word proclaimed, hopefully, truthfully, and accurately. And hopefully that plants seeds of joy in your heart. Church, soak in this passage. Soak in this word. Soak in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Pray these words. Meditate on these words. Talk about these words in your care groups and over coffee and with your families. Don't just let your minds go into cruise control. Direct your thoughts intentionally. We can do this. We can actually direct our thoughts to the things that Paul is telling us to meditate. Direct your thoughts to consider the true source of your joy. Just as we can increase our joy by thinking of the things in our lives that we're looking forward to that might bring us joy or happiness, we can increase our joy spiritually by meditating on the things that God has done for you through Jesus Christ because joy ultimately comes through what Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the the clarity of this word that hopefully I was able to convey. The the unfathomable love of Jesus Christ. That though we were yet sinners, that we rejected him, that we were his enemies, he died for us at that point and gave us the way for us to be reconciled to him. Made reconciliation possible. And Lord, as as we are day to day here, going through our lives with the ups and downs, sometimes being discouraged, Lord. Remind us that our future salvation has been secured not by our work, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Lord, may we, may we cause ourselves to meditate on these things, 
that we would do well to think deeply on these things, to rehearse the blessings that we have through Jesus Christ and his work. And so that we would remember that true joy comes through Jesus and comes specifically through what he has done for us on the cross. We thank you for this word. We ask that it would take root in our hearts and grow the fruit of joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.